0: Welcome to a Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionhill.com. Good morning. Um, I'm happy that you're here this morning. My name is Blake Sellers, for those of you who don't know, looking around, I think pretty much everyone does. Um, but I'm an elder here at Redemption Hill Church. Uh, my wife and I, Lauren, have had the pleasure of being here for eight years, and our kids have only been a part of this church. We're happy to call this place our homes, and um, happy to call you our family. Uh, let's see. Sorry. This morning, we'll be continuing our series through the book of Titus. Uh, we'll be unpacking specifically chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And after this week, we will just have one more sermon uh, in this book. Uh, Garrett will be delivering that next week, and then we will be jumping into Advent. I know, we're already in the Christmas season. Uh, But just to provide a little bit of a teaser, starting in the new year, uh, we will be picking up the book of Romans. So you guys should get excited for that. Romans is amazing. And also a little nervous for those of us who are preaching it, because it's so amazing. Uh, But while uh, the the last few weeks you've probably noticed that Pastor TJ hasn't been up here preaching uh, this week, graciously, Uh, he was up here playing drums, uh, but he has been on paternity leave from preaching. They have a new edition. Um, Keep your distance, but also celebrate with them. Asher's in the back. TJ's doing one of these. You guys didn't see it, but he did. Uh, But in this time where he uh, has uh, been taking some time away from the pulpit to enjoy his family... There have been several different voices up here. Uh, This is my second time. We had Clayton last week. And in total, over the span of seven weeks, we'll have five different men up here delivering the word to you. Yes, and that is exciting. Um, Men who have uh, deliberated over the text to to provide what the Holy Spirit has given to them uh, for that week. And uh, we are so excited, and we look forward to more and more people being built up. So yes, you heard that right. Uh, if you haven't been up here yet, look out. You might be next. Uh, but last week in Clayton's sermon covering uh, the paragraph right before in Titus chapter 2, he actually started his sermon with a verse that he was not going to cover, uh, but he gave as a little teaser to us that uh, we should expect uh, for my passage to kind of build upon that. And the the verse that he mentioned and shared was in Titus chapter 2 verse 15 and it says these then are the things you should teach encourage and rebuke with all authority do not let anyone despise you for teaching these things and in his intro uh, as he encouraged us to kind of earmark this passage uh, he also did an excellent and beautiful job of of putting this passage on a tee for me making it a lot easier for me Uh, He did a fantastic job of sharing the beautiful grace of God that Paul reveals to us in chapter two, and he'll reveal to us again in chapter three. He painted this beautiful picture of the favor of God. And if you believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have received and are receiving this grace. But if you look around to the passages um, that we covered two weeks ago and Titus and then this passage here today, you'll see a little bit of a grace sandwich where uh, grace is in the middle and then on the edges of it, uh, you know, the bread, so to speak, or whatever you use that maybe is a non-bread alternative for your sandwiches uh, is is kind of the, the how we should act, what grace looks like in our lives as it has impacted us. These two passages, these two pieces of bread, they speak into the life of what the believer is to look like. But right in the middle is is that beautiful depiction of grace. So I want to keep that grace in front of us this morning as we also look at what that grace lived out is to uh, appear as in our lives. We'll go ahead and start by reading Titus chapter 3. It'll be on the screens for you this morning. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That might make some people squirm a little bit. Sometimes makes me squirm. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I think we can look out and see that happening in our world. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, God, we thank you for your word. God, your word speaks life into us. It is not just a collection of words written on a page that are dead and have no life and have no meaning, but God, they give us life and meaning. God, your word is the very transformational power of your son. So God, God, I just pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be at work in all of us, and myself and those here today. God, your word has the power to transform. I pray it would do so. Help us to see you as good. Help us to see um, you as gracious. Help us to see you as righteous. Amen so our culture loves a good rags to riches story you probably have heard many of them the ones where uh, maybe someone who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or someone who couldn't afford to uh, go to school or college or maybe even didn't have access to elementary education maybe someone who grew up on welfare but through a series of very fortunate events these people are now very famous millionaires Uh, who are actors, or musicians, or artists, or athletes, or authors, or billionaire CEOs. A quick Google search reveals countless examples of these rags-to-riches types of stories. From Leonardo DiCaprio to Ed Sheeran, from Shania Twain to Selena Gomez, these stories can bring inspiration to those struggling through life, those who are seeking a type of hope. And we gravitate towards these types of stories. They are ingrained in us culturally, and sometimes they're even inappropriately co-opted to garner some type of respect. But to some degree, these rags-to-riches tales, they're also the very essence of who we are as Americans sometimes, what we define as the American dream, the idea that a downtrodden immigrant or a family stuck in generational poverty or a man or woman defined by their past failings can cast them off and have a new chance, cast off their hopeless history for a, fort- a future of fame and fortune and influence. Maybe we have dreamt of this type of rags to riches story. That maybe we can be the next Steve Jobs or Howard Schultz or Chris Pratt or Oprah Winfrey as far as success goes. Or maybe we're just hoping for the lottery so that we can have an immediate rags-to-riches story. These stories are compelling, and they capture our imagination. And each, and each of these stories has three, of, three crucial things in common, kind of story arcs. Rags-to-riches stories must have rags, or else the contrast to the riches doesn't seem so great. There must be some persistent oppressive challenge or struggle associated with it. Number two, the rags-to-riches must always have a turning point. That's the two in rags-to-riches. A transition, which typically occurs through an opportunity that an individual had an outside chance in receiving. Maybe they weren't even looking for it. Maybe they were looking for it, but never thought that they could get it, but hope, were hoping they would. And then three, the rags-to-riches stories must have great riches. Not only do the riches provide contrast to their uh, starting points in the rags, but it sets them up for fame and fortune and success brought on by this opportunity that they didn't think they would receive. I mentioned Oprah a a moment ago. She is without a doubt considered one of the greatest rags to riches tales in America. She was born into generational poverty in Mississippi and underwent years of physical abuse and and um, poverty, sleeping on the front porch of her grandmother's house for years, Oprah received a scholarship to Tennessee State University and became the first black female news anchor and the youngest anchor ever at their station in the South. Now worth more than $3 billion, Oprah owns media companies, clothing lines, has written many books and starred in many films. And as good as Oprah's story is, and others like hers in our culture there's a rags to riches story that, that hits much closer to home than any of those. And this story contains much filthier rags than the literal potato sacks that Oprah grew up wearing. And this story contains far greater riches than the $3 billion that she is worth today. I'm sure you can guess whose story it is, it's ours. Some of you may be excited by that proposition, while others may kind of roll your eyes. What a corny example. We once had rags, now we have riches. But going back through Titus chapter 3, this text kind of lays out like one of those rags to riches stories. And this story, in Titus 3 and all throughout Scripture, for those who are in Christ, is our story. And it follows the similar movements, but for the sake of uh, tying it back into scripture today, we won't call them rags and then the turning point in riches. What we'll call them this morning is grace needed, grace supplied, and grace fulfilled. Grace needed, grace supplied, and grace fulfilled. We needed and still need the good grace of God. As a reminder from Clayton's sermon last week, grace isn't only forgiveness. It includes forgiveness, but it's not only forgiveness. What is grace? Just a little recap. Somebody help me out. What's grace? Yeah, nice job. Unmerited favor or undeserved favor. We need God's unmerited favor. And we need this grace because without it, we are in a world of hurt. Without God's grace, we are lost. But what does lost really mean? Without the favor of God, we find ourselves out of favor with God. Our sin, the sin that was passed down to each and every one of us from Adam in Genesis chapter 3, Sin, our sin, that we willingly walked into in the past and sometimes will still walk into in our present and future. Our sin, it's not just the the thing that separates us from a blameless and holy God, but it signifies that we, in fact, are at odds with him. By our own merits, walking in our own sin, we walk as enemies of him, enemies of God. Scripture tells us with this. Without his favor, we bear the promise that one day we will pay for the price of our rebellion. Without his grace, we will pay the price for our sin on our own. This passage in verse 3, it gives us an example of of who uh, we are without God's grace who we are prior to receiving this unmerited favor. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 says it like this. We'll read through 23. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, for the end of your sin is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, our sins, our sin, these are our rags. Our sin is not something that signifies merely just imperfection. Our sin isn't something that merely shows weakness or room for growth. Sin is a thing that is so detestable, so awful, that its simple presence in the world causes creation to groan and to cry out to be redeemed. As Paul wrote in Romans 6, the earned reward for each individual sin is death. I don't think we comprehend that sometimes. Each and every time we act in direct opposition to God, each and every time we forsake truth for the ease of a lie, each time we engage in gossip, demeaning another image-bearer of God, each time we feel slighted when someone else has received something good because we wanted it ourselves, each time we go to pornography or alcohol or food or our to-do list, going to those things, seeking approval and satisfaction and purpose instead of seeking them from God, each rebellious, treasonous occasion deserves the penalty of death. For you and for me for the whole of humanity, we are in need of grace upon grace. I know that that might feel heavy. I myself can feel the heaviness in the moment of, of understanding or, or remembering the full weight of my sin. But I think it's important that we do sometimes to get a clear picture of these rags that we've been saved from. Sin is so much darker and grimmer and sinister than, than these rags, than the, the word rags even connotates. And earlier I said that likening our conversion to a celebrity's rags of riches story might, you know, give a little eye roll. It might seem corny, but it shouldn't because our rags to riches story starts out in far worse rags than those. And if we don't believe that this story is compelling and good, then one issue may be that we don't fully understand how ugly sin is and exactly the cost of it. Sin is a thing so cancerous that it fractured the relationship between Jesus Christ and God. As Christ took on our sin on the cross bearing the full weight of our death, The death that you and I and all of humanity, past, present, and future deserve. Billions of people's lifetimes of death. Christ bore the weight of billions of people's lifetime of sin on the cross. And he intimately knew each and every detail of that and was willing to go there. Have you ever gotten the privilege of being impacted by someone else's sin? Feels awesome, doesn't it? The hurt and pain that's associated with even being aware that someone hurt someone else. Maybe uh, not even directly impacted by their sin, but you just knew the hurt and pain that it caused. I know for a fact that each of us have felt the direct impact of our own sin, the direct consequences that then come of, of guilt and shame and presumed distance from God and from others. Friends, it's a heavy weight whenever we carry someone else's sin. It's a heavy weight when we carry the awareness of our own. But imagine billions and billions of lives of all of their sins. That's what Jesus took with him on the cross. Receiving the, the wages of that sin on the cross. Paying for the very death that each one of those sins deserves. This is the turning point in our rags to riches story. This is the grace that has been supplied to us. Jesus Christ is the very evidence of unmerited favor coming to us, provided for all who will and have believed. And unlike the turning points and rags-to-riches stories, they don't come with contingency clauses, and it's not in short supply. God's grace doesn't require your performance for it to be poured out either. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 spells this out for us. And and if we don't get an appearance of God's willingness and lovingness and joy in bringing about this grace to us, then I think this passage might be one to marinate on this week. Titus chapter three, verse four, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's grace doesn't rely on you or me. It doesn't rely on our effort or proof that we were worth saving. If you have awareness of your need for a savior, if you believe that Jesus is God's son and his sacrifice is sufficient to be saving for you, then grace has been supplied. Your rags have already been turned into riches. As Clayton beautifully delivered uh, through the word last week, grace has appeared. And one of the beautiful things about the grace having appeared is its sheer kindness. Imagine for a moment if grace hadn't appeared. If sin was allowed to run its course through the world unchecked. If the depravity in the time of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah was multiplied over the entire earth with no stopping without any redemption, without the hand of God to bless humanity with his chosen people. Friends, humanity was not wooing God to save us. We were not presenting a good resume to him to prove that we were worth saving. The Godhead didn't say to themselves, look at all of these people who actually have good hearts. No, he looked down at humanity and wept out of compassion for the depravity that we were committing ourselves. And he looked down on humanity, seeing the death that our actions would lead to and was motivated by love to change history. No, our behavior, humanity's collective behavior, caused the Godhead to look down and have compassion on these people who, in Titus, we see verse three, he looked down on us, on we who were selfish, foolish, Disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures, hated by others and hating one another. And in his own mercy he saved us. He saved us according to the desire that he didn't want us to continue to be enslaved by our sin. Compelled by his mercy, he wanted to save us from the judgment that we were inflicting on ourselves. He was saving us from ourselves has saved us from ourselves. So that, in verse seven, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The inheritance that we receive by being called heirs of God is the same inheritance that Christ received. He, when God looks at us and judges us at the end, he will see Christ's righteousness and not ours. And because he sees Christ's righteousness, we get Christ's reward. We share in the glory of Christ. Scripture says in in Hebrews that man is considered greater than angels. Clayton talked about the floaty place last week, if you remember that. I think we have this kind of silly uh, depiction of what we imagine for heaven to be like but one where where we get the same inheritance that Christ receives from the Father? Those are some riches. I said earlier that we may think that the comparison of celebrity rags to riches is is cheesy, but it's only cheesy because it makes the comparison from what Christ has done for us to the celebrities look so insignificant. what are these riches from our Heavenly Father? Our inheritance is a unique one. It's one that we get to experience both now in this life and forever in eternal life. Our inheritance is a life of freedom. Freedom from the slavery that we once walked in. Freedom from as Titus puts it, the various passions and pleasures that entrap us. Freedom to step out from our old life of sin, our old life of death. But our freedom doesn't just tell us what not to walk in. No, our freedom in this grace of God allows us to walk into something new and beautiful. And we'll go back to verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is an example, and there are others in Scripture, of, of calling us what to walk into specifically. That first one, submit to rulers and authorities. Just ask a question. Does it say to submit to rulers' authorities only when their actions align with your desires? Or maybe only when they are looking out for your best interest? How about showing perfect courtesy toward all people? Who does this apply to? I don't think all people excludes anyone. The difficult thing for us to grapple with is this showing perfect courtesy towards all people. It also applies to those people who seek to hurt you. People who have hurt you. People who have said awful things about you in person or online or to other people. But how can we possibly expect to... uh, expect to respect authorities who do things that we don't agree with and how can we act with courteousness towards those who don't show us courtesy because we have received favor because we carry with us this unmerited unearned love and favor of the creator of the universe that can't be affected or impacted or changed by anyone around us that is the constant in our lives and because we have received this unmerited grace and love and favor from the creator of the universe, whose word about us matters far more than what anyone else can have to say about us, because of this, we don't have to defend ourselves and retaliate when those around us have hurt us. We don't have to seek every opportunity to uh, to call out someone in a way that is going to um, place identity on them just to bring them down so that you can feel feel better about yourself. We have received great mercy and because we have received it out of gratitude and because of desiring for other people to experience it ourselves, we can show great mercy. Our mercy and our favor isn't diminished when we give it away. Sometimes I think we worry about that. But in fact, it is highlighted and it grows. Not that your favor from God grows. That is always at the maximum. But our awareness of the grace that we have been given grows when we extend it to others. It's highlighted and grows as we give it out into the world and others will see your countercultural display of grace. This is why scripture does talk about good works so often. Our salvation doesn't rely on good works. No, our salvation comes from faith alone through grace alone, in Christ alone. Salvation has already been given. Grace has already appeared. But our good works come from this appreciation of the rags-to-riches story that we have been blessed with. Because we understand, or at least in some way, we can understand a little bit of the death penalty that our sin deserves. And because we understand the enormity of the, the sin and what it deserves, and because we understand the enormity of the payment for our sin that Christ made, and because we know of the great inheritance that God has already promised us, we can gladly and confidently commit to our lives, commit to lives of good works. We should be known as people who do good works, not out of fear that we need to earn something, not out of fear so that other people see us as something that we are not, but out of gratitude that we deserved, that we received something that we didn't earn. Wrapping up, I want to consider what this might look like for us. Some of us some of us don't consider our sin or the thing that, that we have been saved from to be all that bad. And because of that, we are far more willing to be wooed back into it, to be enticed by it. If you find that you're continually walking back into the same sin over and over and over again, I want to remind you of two things, maybe two things that you can uh, take away and walk into even in, in uh, those moments. One is to thank God for giving you favor that you didn't deserve and that you don't have to pay for the penalty of that sin. Praise Him. It's amazing you feeling worse about it, or you feeling shame about it, that doesn't bring you closer to God in any way. It doesn't lead you to praise him for the sacrifice that he has given you. In fact, sometimes whenever we wallow in the shame and guilt that we feel because of our sin, we're actually diminishing the thing that God has done for us. Satan would love that for us. Thank Jesus for dying for that sin. And then, and then the second thing, remember that you have an inheritance. That isn't who you are anymore. You are not a slave to sin. You are not doomed to death because of that sin. Sometimes we walk in the same sin over and over thinking, well, this ju- is just who I am. I've always struggled with this thing. Paul writes in verse five that, it, that you have received a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and renewal doesn't leave, doesn't end up with the same thing that it had before. You are a new thing. You have been made new in Christ. So no, that isn't who you are anymore. That isn't just who you are. Who you are is a freed man or woman of God. And sin doesn't have any hold on you. Band, you can come back up. The devil would love to have us so consumed by lies about who we are, lies about what we can and can't become. If he has us consumed with those lies, then he can keep us from walking in our life of freedom. Friends, let us walk into good works which he has prepared us for because we have been given such favor that we didn't earn, favor of God. It's a freeing thing, it's a great thing, and we're gonna pray and worship, so hopefully we believe that a little bit more. You can stand, we're gonna pray. God, I thank you for your grace that you have bestowed on us. What I brought to the table for receiving your grace was my necessity, I needed it. My sin proved that I need it. God, and I I thank you that you have freely given it to us. And not only are we no longer due the penalty of, of our sin, not only is that bill fully paid for, but all of the bills and all of the bad checks that we have written, God, they've, been, they've been written off by you. And we don't have a lingering credit score to show those bad checks, God. We have a perfect history of your son in place of our own. God, help us to believe that times where, where the devil and Satan may remind us of how terrible we are, how, how futile our attempts at stepping out from sin are at times. God, help us in those times to remember that in you we are more than conquerors of our sin. God, we are heirs with you. We receive Christ's name. So that name that the devil is calling us, it's not our name anymore. Our name is under Christ. God, help us to walk this out this week. Help that to change our our desires and our passions. Help it to give us gratitude that we want to show to other people. And in those moments where maybe the grace that we have received, maybe that favor that we have received feels like maybe it's in the balance that I need to assert myself for me walks in. God, help us to put that to death as well. Help us to walk in your favor and showing that to others. God, you are good. Amen. This morning, we're going to take communion. Uh, we have communion cups on the back table. Uh, if you didn't grab one already, feel free to do so now. Communion is this time where we get to remember. Remember of the sacrifice that Christ gave to us. Willingly, I'll remind you, happily, out of his love for you. So I'm going to read this passage over us this morning, and then during worship, you're going to have opportunity to uh, to thank God for giving you a son, for confessing and repenting of sin that he died to save you from, and to rejoice that you are saved with others around you. That's beautiful as well. In this body and others like it around the world, celebrating and praising the name of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us proclaim his death until he comes, through taking this and remembering, and through praising and worshiping him.